Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex to be considered before becoming a client of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Securities are offered through HBEC Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Annex Wealth Management and HBEC are unaffiliated. This program may contain forward-looking statements which may not come true. Please consult with an advisor about your specific situation. Taking the mystery out of investing with answers to your financial questions. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald from Annex Wealth Management on WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, October 20th. Thanks for joining us. Dave Spano is here, Derek Felsky and Mark Oswald. I'm Danny Clayton. And how was your roller coaster ride this week? That's exactly right. There was a roller coaster ride. And with all of the ups and downs uh, in the last week or so, it, we ended up in the same spot, Derek. You know, and I think it really goes back to what we saw just over a week and a half ago when we had a back-to-back losses in the Dow of 1,300 points. And I think that's really where the conversation should start. Well, I, you know, as we've, as we've talked about often, typically when markets decline sharply, they bounce and then they retest those lows. So far, it's been a successful retest. We'll see, obviously, where the market opens on Monday. But generally, the focus is going to shift more and more towards earnings and away from talk about trade fears and higher interest rates and the like. And I still believe that this quarter is going to show really strong growth for U.S. companies. And what we're seeing is just the, the smallest bit of news is really upsetting the market. We saw earlier this week that Steve even Mnuchin said he was not going to Saudi Arabia to this Davos in the desert, and that really uh, frightened the market, at least uh, one of the days this week. Well, certainly it did. I mean, we started looking at Saudi Arabia as an oil producer and what that could do to energy prices at the pump and then also to energy companies. You start to look at the way that we consume energy in the United States. So, But, you know, it's always the news, guys. There's always something that's going on that affects the markets either up or, or down but one of the things that I was struck by this week or the last couple of weeks has been the volatility of the market, the bigger swings in the market. And for a lot of people this summer or even last year, a lot of people were saying, where's the volatility? Where's the opportunity? Where do I get into this market? Where do I rebalance? And maybe that's what you should be looking for right now. No, and I, I personally like it when the markets are more volatile rather than less volatile. Things got very complacent. The VIX was trading at half the levels it normally trades at. It closed a week at around 20 which is the long-term average. So volatility is starting to get back to normal levels, which is precisely what you'd expect in the latter stages of a bull run. So here we are, and we're talking, frankly, about trading versus investing. And I think that is a big takeaway right now because what we're seeing here in the short term would be interesting if you are a trader, Mark. No doubt about it. You know, I was watching the news the other night, and there was a portion of the sports where Greg Gard, the UW basketball coach, was on, and he was talking about the season that they had last year, and he used a great analogy. He said, when you're looking at your, when you're looking forward through your windshield, 4% of it's the rearview mirror, 96% of it's the windshield. So we can look back, and obviously we learn from things that happened in the past, but you should be looking forward. We should be looking forward to revenues and earnings and how companies are going to make profits going forward and what that's going to mean for the markets. So let's look forward with our investing. So I, I take it you don't text when you drive. No, no I, I don't. I, I, I Frankly, I don't. Do, because it would be 2% at that point, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think a really good point uh, that Mark is making here is is earnings coming up look fantastic. They do. We saw, for example, a great, re- great report out of Procter & Gamble on Friday. We saw a great report out of American Express. Uh, next week we get a lot of technology earnings. 
Uh, but by and large, the beat rates, you know, something that we focus on, you know, whether these companies are beating expectations, are not quite as strong as they've been in past quarters. For example, on revenues, only 58% of the companies that have reported so far have exceeded revenue estimates. That's the weakest reading in six quarters. So clearly, analyst estimates have somewhat caught up to the growth that we saw at the beginning of the year. But 58% is still a good number. I mean, historically, that number's around 65, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. So when you still have companies beating their expectations, you look for that forward guidance, Derek. There's evidence that there's going to be earnings growth in 2019. It might be slower growth, but it's still growth. It is, and, and one of the, the nice things that's occurred, frankly, in the last several months is as these earnings estimates have gone up, if companies report greater corporate profits, the valuation on the S&P 500 is now basically at a lower level than it was at the beginning of the year because, as we said many times, some, some years the stock market outperforms earnings. Other years, earnings outperform the stock market. And this is one of those years which I'm sure is frustrated for, frustrating for many of our clients and, and other investors. But basically, the fundamentals in corporate America are sound, and the valuations are more reasonable than they were at any time this year. So let's talk about that just for a second. The price-to-earnings ratio, the price was higher than the earnings was in January. Compare that to where we are today. Right. The P.E. at the beginning of the year was roughly about 17 times. We're currently trading at 15 and a half times next year's estimates, uh, which, given the level of interest rates, the level of inflation, and what is still, in our view, a somewhat accommodative Fed, is a reasonable valuation for equity markets in the United States. Dirk Felsky, our chief investment officer. Hang out a little bit longer. This is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. Head to AnnexWealth.com. We would love for you to explore what we've got to offer. There's quite a bit. First thing you'll see is the Get Started button. You hit that, you'll be able to sign up for a free portfolio analysis. Also sign up for the Axiom, which is our weekly newsletter. Again, that is at AnnexWealth.com. From simple investments to stock advice, back to Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Money Talk Annex Wealth Management, Saturday the 20th, which means that yesterday was the 19th, which means that was a big date in your history, guys. Yeah, October 19th, 1987. People remember the, the major crash of 1987, and it was significant on a percentage basis. Mark, it was a big number. Well, it's really interesting because when we get to a market, a Dow that's 25,000, 26,000, and we have a correction that's a couple of hundred points like we had last week, people look at it and they say, oh, the Dow was down 500 points, Derek. What we're talking about on a percentage basis, in 1987, on October 19th, when that market crashed, and we're talking about the broad markets, they were down more than 20% in one day. Right. That's and, quite an event. And that was, and that was 600 points. And, and again, this is something that I think a lot of investors out there and, and people that are you know, looking at the markets really need to think about is sometimes, despite you know, the, the, the newest, greatest fancy toy, some of these uh, exchange-traded products do have issues like that, where you can actually get a market that descends below NAV, which then fuels f further selling and can lead to further as well. So that's why we're very judicious about the types of ETS we use in our clients' portfolios at Annex. Now, let's talk about that, because that is a significant point. And what happened back in 1987 was a lack of buyers. And if you don't have anyone to buy that security, the price keeps looking for it's searching for a buyer. So it keeps coming down. Now, what Derek is talking about is are these exchange traded funds. We like them. We've talked about them. But there is a significant difference when you're buying ETFs on the open market. Well, there is. And, and 
for a lot of people, in 1987, you got to remember, there weren't a lot of the fail-safes in place in the market that there are today. Could we see a 20% correction in a day today? I don't know that that's possible because the market would take a time out. Certain securities have halted trading when they've had a negative event happen to their stock, even intraday. So there are safeties in place that probably would preclude a 20% move in one day. Now let's get back to the issue of ETFs. When you say that, you mean the whole entire market because there are certainly certain securities that that go through price discovery. Certainly, but we're talking about in 1987, you're talking about the entire market moving down 20%, more than 20% in one day. But getting back to the ETF issue that we started with, Derek, when you're talking about exchange-traded funds, usually you're talking about an unmanaged index, a basket of investments. And so you could have the S&P 500 or the Dow or the NASDAQ or even an emerging markets index and and get all of that market. So when the market deteriorates in an index, you don't have a manager, an active manager that's going to step in and make decisions about what to buy and what to sell. And it becomes the debate about passive investing versus active investing. Well, I think the clearest example of this is there are some high-yield ETFs, HYG, JNK are the two largest. And basically, these are ETFs that are supposed to mimic the performance of a basket of high-income junk bond securities. The problem is that those underlying markets are very thin. And to the degree that an ETF like HYG goes down sharply, that means those underlying securities need to be sold in order to match up the exposure. And, you know, if in a case of an illiquid market where HYG could be trading below net asset value, that could continue for some time until buyer shows up, which is one of the reasons why we like active managers and high yield, because they know this. They know that they can pick off stupid volatility like that and, and get things back back in line. But in the short run, things can, can go awry. You know, Derek, when we start talking about high yield bonds and other fixed income instruments, you start thinking about the Fed and rising interest rates. And Dave, we were talking off air a little bit about the shift of risk between equities and bonds in a rising rate environment. And there certainly is a trade-off between risk and return. And as interest rates start to go up, we have to pay attention to it. And that's the reason why the Fed garners so much attention, because the Fed clearly says they intend to continue to raise rates, Derek. And that's the reason why we pay attention to it. Yeah, they they did in the Fed minutes. Uh, They suggested they're going to raise rates in December. The likelihood of that is about 80% according to the futures markets. Uh, They're still pointed to three increases next year. But, you know, as I listen to CNBC and I hear all those commentators go on, they all assume that the Fed is just going to do this no matter what's going on around them. And I don't believe that for a minute. I think the Fed is very focused on what's going on overseas and overseas markets, what's going on in China, uh, what kind of tweets are emerging regarding tariffs and the rest. So to sit there and just blindly sell stuff because you assume that the Fed dot plots is correct, I think is an error in judgment. And, and, that, and well, that hasn't been the case. I mean, if we go back and look over the last decade, those dot plots have not been accurate. And the key to their conversation has been data dependent. And as Mark was saying earlier, you know, they need headlines. They need to talk about something. They need to explain today's wiggles and, and the noise that you see on a daily basis in the markets. And, and frankly, the Fed is, is thinking longer term. In fact, this fiscal fiscal policy initiative that the Trump administration got through, which has reinvigorated the economy, is giving the Fed the opportunity to get rates to more normal levels, which will then give them bullets in the event of a, a reversal down the road. Derek Felsky, our chief investment officer at Annex Wealth Management. Our website, 
AnnexWealth.com. Just head to that. Hit that Get Started button. We would love to talk to you about a free portfolio analysis. You can also sign up for the Axiom. Still to come on the show, it's Medicare open enrollment season. We've got a segment coming up about that from our planning department. Also from our planning department, what are the wealth killers in your budget? That's all on the way. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. Never get less than your money's worth. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. It's football season and it's Medicare season. Joining me is Ron Johnson, our senior financial planner and CFP here at Annex Wealth Management. Ron, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Danny. It's Medicare open enrollment time. It's now through, what, December 7th? That's right. All right, so what does that mean? That's a very good question. For those that are already on Medicare and have opted to take Medicare Advantage, there's an interesting rule that happens once a year. And what the rule is is that the insurance companies have an opportunity to change what they cover. For instance, whether the doctors remain the network, how much the deductibles are, what prescription drugs that they will cover. So they have an opportunity to change that every year. In addition to that, the rules also state, well, if the insurance companies have an opportunity to change what they cover and the policies they have, you also have an opportunity each year to switch policies and not have to worry about pre-existing conditions or other underwriting issues. You can just simply switch policies. And that happens, as you said, every year between October 15th and December 7th. So why, why is this important? Well, if you're not paying attention and open enrollment closes, your current Mediga- Medicare Advantage plan could be completely different starting January 1st. What you really want to do, Danny, is you want to review what the changes are and make sure that's still going to work for you. And if it's not, you need to go to the open market. Now, you can do that research yourself, but oftentimes we think it makes more sense to bring on a product expert. Uh, There's lots of independent agents out there that can act as a fiduciary, meaning that you don't have to pay them anything and they will look for the best plan for you. We think that's probably a really efficient way to go rather than trying to do all the research yourself because there can be a lot to it. So can people just take what they did the year previous or like you said, it changes? Does it change radically every single year? It depends on the insurance company, really. So the default is if you do nothing, you're going to keep the same plan you have right now. If the plan stays relatively similar, then you're okay. But sometimes, especially prescription drug coverage, it can be a big deal. So if you're on a very expensive medication and your insurance plan drops that coverage or stops covering that particular medication, then you're going to want to try and find a plan that covers it. Otherwise, it could be very expensive for you in the following year. How's the Medicare website? Is it fairly easy to navigate? Can you get much information? Sometimes those things are very governmental. Right. Well, there's tons and tons of resources out on the Internet, including Medicare.gov is one of them. In the state of Wisconsin, I believe, is, is a re- resource to find what plans are available in the state of Wisconsin when we're talking about Medicare Advantage. But it does require a fair amount of time on on your part to sort through everything that's out there. Well, and you have to be careful when you just go into Google and you write Medicare options, you're not going to get pure organic results, meaning the most pure of what you should be reading. You're going to get different companies that are placing those ads in there and placing those returns on the search results. So you got to be careful. Yeah, that's a great point, Danny. Uh, you may not be reading just information, you could be reading an advertisement. Right. And so uh, I think the best course is to find an independent agent that can help be your guide for you. 
Say if somebody's not eligible for Medicare yet, but they will be next year, is this still the time to get involved? So open enrollment only applies to people that are currently on Medicare and purchased a Medicare Advantage plan. When you enroll in what's called the initial enrollment period at age 65, you're going to be looking at Medicare Advantage plans and know what they offer at that point. So it wouldn't matter what what was in place in the past. Well, we've got a good team here to walk our clients through it, right? Yeah, right. So our process here at Annex is we'll walk a client through high level what Medicare is, what's the difference between Medigap coverage and Medicare Advantage. And then we often... Rather than having our clients do the research on their own, we do have some fiduciaries that we use and we trust and will help guide them through all the different products that are offered here in Wisconsin. Got it. Ron Johnson, Senior Financial Planner and CFP here at Annex Wealth Management, talking about Medicare open enrollment between now and December 7th. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Danny. Don't settle for less. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Welcome back. Randy Winkler, Financial Planning Manager and CFP at Annex Wealth Management. Good to have you back. Thanks, Danny. We're going to talk about wealth killers, and these are some of the things that will will mess you up. Yeah, we see a lot of things that uh, derail you on the path to a successful retirement, college plan. What These things, they're, they get in the way, and they're very common. There's an old saying I used to laugh at. We spend money we don't have on stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like. Yeah, I don't I, think that's always the case here. We're very much in a consumer society. And the number one thing that that you've seen is the car. Yep. Americans love their cars and we spend a lot of money on it. In fact, many times so much that it's detrimental to other goals. I always look at it. It's really exciting for about a week or two and then it's just your car. Right. You got this big payment until the next one comes along and it's always this thing they're chasing after the next the next flashy car. Well, if you buy the classic story is, is that it depreciates the millisecond you drive off the lot. Yeah. In fact, the classic book called The Millionaire Next Door. Do you remember that one? Oh, yes. Sure. They did a study of the millionaires in the United States, and most of them drove old cars. I think Warren Buffett drives an old car. Yeah, he drives a really old pickup truck, I think. What a lot of people are advised to do, I haven't seen a lot of people do this in reality, is when you finish making your car payment and your car's paid off, keep making that payment, but to yourself. Build up that cash reserve so when it is time to buy the next car, you can pay cash for it. You don't have to finance it. You save on so much financing there. Plus, then you're probably getting a little bit more out of your car. It's interesting that you say when you finally pay it off because now you're seeing car loans that are going, what, five, six, seven years? I mean, it's crazy. The 0% thing is probably going to go away now that interest rates are going up. We did a little research on this, and we found that there's a trillion dollars in car debt out there, and one in five cars gets seized. Well, how much are people paying for car loans? The uh, the average household is paying about $523, so that could be on multiple cars. And that's a pretty big percentage a of a lot. lot of people's income. You shouldn't go, the, the rule of thumb is you shouldn't go over 10% of your pre-tax income on car payments and insurance. We're talking about wealth killers. The first one was car, and then the second one must be the house. Yep, buying too much home. And I know we've talked about this in the past because we both have a similar philosophy yeah. on that. But people get overextended. They're spending too much money on a house or they got the big house and they can't afford to furnish it. Well, we, we never fell for the McMansion thing, but we bought a very basic ranch house and it was just fine when the boys were in the house. It was, it was a little too small at times and it's just fine now. And I've gone through two bouts of unemployment 
and we didn't suffocate. It's it's nice when you've got a buffer built in. If you can, you want to have a nice house, but if it's all you can afford, you're expecting that the good times are going to be rolling forever. A saying I like: saying yes to one thing is saying no to something else. So if you're saying yes to the big house, you might be saying no to travel or college or retirement. Sitting down and thinking about what's really important to you. My wife and I went through this exercise. We love to travel. We take these big trips. We bought a little house so that we could take the big trip. One of the things is the phone. And we both searched for some data on this. And I'll tell you, do you remember the old days? We're talking about the cell phones. Mm -hmm. Remember the old days when you could get the phone for a penny? Yes. That's completely changed now. So if you go into most of the plans, you're getting the brand new iPhone or the brand new Droid, the S9 or whatever it is, but you're paying every single month. It's a lease. Yep. So you're paying about 15 to 20 bucks extra. And it's a lot like the car. If you have to have the cutting edge, if you have to have the best one, rather than just saying, does this fit my needs, you're going to be paying a lot more. And a very good friend of mine introduced me to a term I've never heard before, but I, I, it cracks me up. It's the nerd tax. So he says, I'm willing to pay the nerd tax because I go and buy the brand new iPhone. He'll sell that iPhone to somebody else who'll get it for much cheaper because he's got to have the next sure. one. And he goes, I'm willing to pay the, the nerd tax because I have to have the cutting edge. Here's a tip. I'm a big fan of the mid-level unlocked phone. And an unlocked phone is that you can get get it and it'll work on most networks as soon as you put your SIM card in. I spend maybe a couple hundred dollars on a new phone. It's not the best one, but it's a good one. Just put the SIM card in and it works. Let's move on to the next wealth killer and that is cable. Cable TV. This is a huge one and it's one that sneaks up on a lot of people because they they may complain about what they're paying on a monthly basis, but if you annualize that or put it out a couple of decades, people are spending tens of thousands of dollars on television. Do you lump the internet in with that? It can be broken up, but most people are spending uh, about $85 to $135 a month on just cable. I'd say you could probably make a better argument for wanting to have uh, good internet, and then there's alternatives to the cable. You know what happens that with that is is we've got it down to about $47 a month, but then Hulu is, what, 8 bucks a month? Netflix is $11 a month. See how it adds up. It yeah. adds up real quick. Most people are spending about 1000 to $1,200 a year. Talking about wealth killers, no emergency fund. Is that a wealth killer? Yeah, that everything else we've talked about is something that is detrimental if you do. This is something that's detrimental if you don't do it. It's startling how few people actually have an emergency fund. You know, 34% of Americans don't have one. So if something hits, where do they find the money? Borrowing it. They're putting it on their credit card, Ooh. which is another one that'll kill you. It, uh, a study came out just recently that said that 44% of people couldn't handle a $400 emergency. Mm. And then our final one is lottery tickets. And I always thought that that was kind of a luxury for people or a fun little thing. It's not. Probably about 15 years ago, I read a survey, but they said that 40% of people, their plan was to win the lottery. That was that was what they planned to do. How are you going to retire? Well, I'm going to win the lottery. Like, no, it's probably not going to happen. Well, somebody has to win. That doesn't really hold water because, you know, somebody has to get hit by lightning. Somebody has to be eaten by a shark. Somebody has to get hit by lightning while being uh, getting eaten by a shark. And the odds for that are better than winning the lottery. Considerably better. Randy Winkler, financial planning manager and CFP at Annex Wealth Management. Always good when you come in. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Never get less than your money's worth. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ.
It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management for Saturday the 20th. Thanks for riding along with us. AnnexWealth.com is our website, and that's where you can find the Ask Annex button. We love to talk to you guys about your questions, and let's we got a bunch, so let's get going. Here's one from Larry. When Amazon enters a category like groceries, is that bad or good for other grocery stocks? Does this mean that they're seeing the category as a positive? I mean, I personally can't imagine Amazon entering any category in retail as being positive for the other competitors. Amazon has so many advantages, their ability to deliver, their ability to to get fulfillment in a very quick and reasonable way, their ability to cut prices as a loss leader. Amazon entering groceries has been a difficult thing. Kroger, I know, is a very cheap stock. It's had a bounce. But the long-term fundamentals, to me, in grocery stores is not very good. Here's one from Tommy. Canada legalized recreational marijuana this week. Can money be made, or is this all hype? What's your opinion of cannabis stocks? Uh, my opinion, opinion of cannabis stocks is similar to my opinion that, of Bitcoin, essentially, that there's a lot of hype here. There's a lot of growth in front of us. The valuations are tricky. The way I would approach it is look at companies that are going to benefit from perhaps using some of the, the active chemicals that are in cannabis. So, for example, you saw Constellation Brands buy a significant chunk of canopy growth, which is a large, large Canadian cannabis company. Uh, you could see a company like Altria get involved. So I would look at companies like that where you could generate additional growth. The other thing that we have to pay attention to, too, is what does the United States government do here? We know Canada legalized it. Will the U.S. US legalize it across all 50 states, that, of course, would cause people to pile into these stocks because the market would be much bigger than people currently think it is. It took a long time, didn't it, Dave? It was 2015 that Trudeau ran. That was one of the planks he, on he his ran, platform. He ran so under it took this, a while. Yeah, he ran under this premise, and he did get it through. So this is not this, this was not news that this was going to happen. But it in took fact, a while. It did take a yeah. while. And if you, it takes a while in a socialist country, imagine what it would be like to do that here. Right. Well, the other thing, too, is I just did my absentee ballot. It's actually on the Wisconsin ballot about whether or not uh, cannabis should be legal. Next question is from Karen. I've heard the term active manager used, but I don't fully understand what that means. It sounds more expensive than an index-based approach. Well, that's funny because, uh, Derek, in a previous life, you were one of the aforementioned, an active manager, and what that really meant, of course, that you managed a mutual fund. Yeah, and I'd like to say I was worth the extra expense. but We're, we're still waiting. <laughs> no, but basically an active manager is one who, you know, and it, it may be narrowly defined, say, as a growth manager or value manager who combs the landscapes for stock that fit that criteria, puts his, puts his best efforts in, puts together a portfolio, and hopefully beats whatever benchmark or index he's, he's measured against, whereas the passive manager is basically just the index. It's gonna, you're going to get the good with the bad, and depending upon whatever selection committee constructed that index, that's how it will perform. So there's been a lot that has been talked about. In fact, more money is going into passive and exchange trade funds than into active managed funds, and a lot of that is because of the hype that has gone into that, the fact that the cost is is lower. But in this whole run where the money has gone into there, what has the Fed been doing? Well, the Fed has basically been keeping everyone alive with these unnaturally low rates. So, for example, there are many companies in the Russell 2000 that probably would be out of business were it not for, for, for these low rates. A third of the companies in the Russell 2000 index, a small cap index of, of companies, basically do not make money. So in an environment like this, it's made it very hard for an active manager who's looking for high-quality businesses that generate free cash flow, pay dividends, have nice growth prospects. It's been very hard for that active manager to beat these indexes. But that will change as volatility increases. And you know, as you know, we do, we do a deep dive on a lot of companies as well, and we can look across the spectrum and say this company has you know slow growth, has 
is, doesn't have the, the earnings potential, doesn't have the profit potential, and we would eliminate that, that stock. And in an index, as you said, you get the whole basket. You do. And, and at the time that the index is constructed, those are the components. They don't change that often. So you'll see like a General Electric being in the Dow, but then it's not in the Dow. Uh, why? Because they didn't succeed. They did a poor job. So they replaced it with Walgreens. That's Ask Annex, and that's the conduit that you can get to us, and uh, we get a lot. We get more than we could actually do on the air, but we always get back to everybody. So you can hit that at at AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask Annex button. AnnexWealth.com is the website. This is Money Talk, WTMJ. Don't settle for less. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday the 20th. Boy, where did October go, huh? Exactly. Holy cow. Okay. Uh, Mark, you said you spotted something that was pretty interesting this week. Yeah, it's been something that we've been following on Money Talk here now for a lot of years. And it, it, it's, it struck me as funny, Dave, because, you know, we get a lot of industry stuff and, and we read a lot during the week about investments and investment-related topics. But an email came to me earlier this week and um, I shared it with you and, you know, they were talking about the fiduciary standard, and this fiduciary standard of care is something that we've talked about on the show for a lot of years, and understanding the difference, knowing the difference between a fiduciary and a suitability-based person. And the article said that the SEC was hoping to release a fiduciary standard of care in September of 2019. And I looked at it twice. I read it twice. I was like, another year is going to go by, and we're still going to continue to have this debate and this lack of clarity over who's a fiduciary and who's not a fiduciary. And how does a consumer in the next year, how do they discern, how do they draw that line between knowing who they're working with, whether that person is a salesperson or whether they're a true fiduciary? And, of course, you know, Annex has trademarked know the difference because we want our listeners to know the difference between financial advisors, and there is a significant difference. The reason why that I find that entertaining as well is because this goes back to the post-recession. There was a lot of legislation that came through during that time that suggested that all advisors should be fiduciaries. Well, there was, and we're talking about Dodd-Frank, and that's 2008. And 2008, when Dodd-Frank was passed, it called on the SEC to establish a fiduciary standard of care or define a standard of care. That has not happened yet. And so you're thinking about that now. September of 2019, since the passage of that rule, 11 years has gone by. The wheels are grinding slowly here. And Barney Frank is long gone. And Barney Frank has long mm-hmm. said that it, it was overreaching, too, yeah. that, that, the, that that regulation itself probably was overreaching with financial institutions and some of the other things it tried to accomplish. But the fact of the matter is, when in our world, when we're talking about people who are trying to get to their retirement, when we're talking about people who are trying to get to their financial goals, they have to be able to understand clearly the difference between a fiduciary and a non-fiduciary. Well, I I tell you, from a marketing standpoint, there's a lot of marketers out there that are really blurring the lines now. Mm -hmm. I see this more and more. This just must raise your blood pressure, Mark. Well, it does, because one, one of the things that they could simply do, and this has been suggested, is who is an advisor and who can use that word, who can use that title. Today, you have people who are salespeople, stockbrokers, traditional insurance agents that are able to call themselves advisors under the definition that's allowed by FINRA. And so you have people that are salespeople that are saying they're an advisor, and then you have fiduciaries that are saying they're an advisor. Well, how does someone tell the difference, right? So it it becomes really difficult, and what was intended to be consumer protection, investor protection, has really gotten away from us. But to Danny's point, there are folks out there who say, well, of course we act in your best interest. Who else's interests are we going to act? Well, they're going to act in the 
firm's best interest because that is the definition of suitability. They are an agent of the firm. It's a standard of care. And so fiduciary is a legal standard of care. The way that we've tried to communicate with people is there is a way to try to to tell the difference between a fiduciary and a non-fiduciary. You can't just ask them. You have to ask them to put it in writing. And I think that that is the easiest way to get past that argument. You say, what relationship are we going to have during the term that we work together? And if they're not willing to put it in writing, their chances are that they're hiding behind that fiduciary cloak. They're saying, I can call myself an advisor, but I'm not really going to act as an advisor. So my rule number one to people would be, if you're working with somebody who is claiming to be a fiduciary, make sure that they're committed to putting it in writing. And we have done that. It doesn't mean we are the end-all and be-all, but I have certainly had conversations in social settings with people who work for large insurance companies around here and brokerage firms around here who say, of course, we're fiduciaries. Well, they're, they're, that's a problem. It is because fiduciary always or fiduciary sometimes. Exactly. I think, and I think that's the difficulty is because in this relationship, you want to say, I, I, I'm a fiduciary to you in this relationship. I'm not a fiduciary to you in that relationship. Look, it's mumbled. It's jumbled. There's a lot of work for consumers to do to try to understand. But I think rule number one, as we get towards September of 2019, and who knows, this date's been backed up and backed up and backed up. They're just hoping to have somebody by September of 2019. In the meantime, if you're working with somebody today or you're thinking about working with somebody going forward, get them to put that fiduciary standard of care in writing. It's paragraph one in our agreement with our clients. Mark Oswald, Dave Spano, thank you very much. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. That's our show for Saturday, October 20th. Thanks for listening today. If you need to get a hold of us, AnnexWealth.com is the website. Just check it out. Uh, That's where you can find all of our locations, including Annex Everywhere. And we haven't mentioned that for the whole show. But as long as you can hear this radio station, we can deal with you. And that includes you guys in Michigan and the folks in Illinois and uh, some in Indiana that listen to WTMJ as well. As long as you can hear us, we can take care of you. That is called Annex Everywhere. That is safe. That is secure. And that is fantastic. That is Annex Everywhere as well. As long as you can hear us, we can take care of you. That is called Annex Everywhere. That is safe. That is secure. And that is fantastic. That is Annex Everywhere. This is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, October 20th. Have a great week. We'll see you next Saturday. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Scripps Media Incorporated.